Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled American Royal. The date, September 2021, and my name is Bell Avis. Definition of royal. Quote, having the status of a king or queen or a member of their family. Unquote. Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution of the United States. Quote, no title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. Unquote. Quote, what manner of the country was this that worshipped children to the extent that they were treated as royalty? Unquote. Jude Devereux. In his biographical article on Rollo, the first Viking ruler of Normandy, author Joshua Mark notes, quote, Rollo, circa 860 CE to 930 CE, was a Viking raider and chieftain who became the founder and first ruler of the region of Normandy. In 911, Rollo converts to Christianity as part of a deal with the Frankish king Charles the Simple. And upon this conversion, he changes his name to Robert. And under Charles the Simple, he becomes the first Duke of Normandy. But even after his dukedom was declared, he still conducted raids into the kingdom of West Francia. It was his great-great-grandson, William II of Normandy, who conquered England and added to his titles, King William I of England. All subsequent royalty, including our current Elizabeth, Charles, and William, can all lay claim to this centuries-long evolution from William I. All of those dynasties, Angevin, Plantagenet, Lancaster, York, Tudor, Stuart, Hanover, and Windsor, all contained a few drops of Rollo's blood. In other words, like all royalty, they descended from some warlord who was really good with a sword and inspiring other hard men to follow. For all the pretensions to a somehow special kind of human being, an elevated homo sapien, the reality is something closer to the accident of birth. That is really the root of so-called royalty. And even natural birth is no guarantee of success. Edward I, who reigned in the late 1200s, was martial, intelligent, clever, and ruthless. His son, Edward II, not so much. And one tale has him murdered with a hot poker. You'll just have to learn about the physical location of the poker on your own. This is what uh, Google and search engines are for, after all. And in the case of Edward II, it was his queen who perpetuated this act. I have always struggled with the concept of royalty. Perhaps it is continuing strain of American tradition. But as I will note later on, that strain is beginning to wither. So instead, it is probably that the more one explores the beginning of monarchy, the more one finds some especially vicious and ruthless person, Arallo, at the beginning. In a different podcast, I wrote of the utility of having such an arrangement as a royal family in that they tend to free up the real leader. In the case of Britain, for example, the prime minister to be what they really are, a smarmy politician who cuts deals and engenders compromises. And I really don't like that ceremonial part of the role of our American presidents because, well, they too are smarmy politicians. The inaugural ball, 
the receiving of winning sports teams, or, well, when the president happens to correspond to the woke politics of said sports teams. Here's a description from The Guardian of Obama's first inaugural. Quote, Barack Obama completed his inauguration with a slow, seemingly endless shuffle with First Lady Michelle in front of thousands of supporters while being serenaded by Jennifer Hudson at the official inaugural ball in Washington, D.C. Smiling broadly, the president sang into his wife's ear as Hudson performed Al Green's Let's Stay Together, the song which Obama claimed it his own when he unexpectedly broke into it at a campaign fundraising event a year ago. The ritual of the inaugural ball and the first couple's waltz is as much about the first lady's dress as celebrating the peaceful transition of power, unquote. If I ever need to purge my body, I will not need an emetic. I can just read this over and over and over again. This is not the stuff of, of, of American politics, of our republic. This is the stuff of coronations. Real royals, they have affairs. They obtain divorces. They make dumb business deals and say stupid things in public. So when Prince Harry marries what would have been termed a social climber in the olden days, who then try to profit from the royal lineage in a grubby fashion, it is not the decision of a superior man, but rather one who has succumbed to the charms of an attractive woman. In other words, billions of young men throughout history. And do not get me started on what happened with Prince Andrew and that freaking weird Epstein Island. Mysterious and creepy islands aside, the Windsors... Well, they seem very much like you and me, and therein lies the problem. And because I do not agree with the concept of somehow a royal being a superior man, how do I reconcile the thought of, of trying to avoid anything even remotely like another Obama inaugural ball? Would be to create some sort of an office, I don't know, a premier or something like that, something like that they have in Israel and other countries, in which that person can be the one who rises above the petty politics and the president still can engage in the mud of the swamp. I have written extensively of our Roman origins and write this piece in the months of Augustus and September as exemplars of that influence. But right now, I am writing this on a Wednesday or Woden's Day. Tomorrow is Thor's Day, and the next is Freya's Day. I note the Viking tradition here, whose concept of royalty was the guy who could best chop the head off the various enemies of his people. But even before the Vikings of the 800s, there were the Franks of roughly 5 to 800. One of the more exciting aspects of Frankish royalty was their desire not to have a single heir, but rather divide the holding amongst all sons, and thus, the best man wins. Of course, like so much history, the real loser in this fashion would be the peasant, whose land holdings would be seized, crops destroyed, livestock stolen, as these sons, brothers, and nephews, and their armies contended for power. But there was a certain level of egalitarianism in this concept. Even Charlemagne intended such a division. Unfortunately, it did not come about with his son, Louis the Pious, because of untimely deaths. Still, Charlemagne's grandsons divided the Holy Roman Empire into three divisions, and those three divisions drove history for the next 1,000 years. Now, those who fantasize about reincarnation always seem to be born again as noblemen, princesses, or great scientists. George S. Patton thought he was descended from a marshal of Napoleon. As this passage from 
We are the Mighty History website. I just, one finds the craziest clean websites in this genre. Uh, here's the quote from the, I have to say it again, We are the Mighty History website. Quote, When the Allies left North Africa to invade Sicily, British General Sir Harold Alexander told Patton that if he had been alive in the 19th century, Napoleon would have made him a marshal, to which Patton replied, but he did. Unquote. Note that Patton did not think he was some grunt from a, a tiny French village who was ignominiously dispatched in some obscure valley fighting Spanish insurgents. But the reality is, is that before 150 years ago, the vast number of humans were, well, farmers and peasants. There were undoubtedly mine workers, sailors, trade apprentices, and of course soldiers. But the vast majority, we are talking like, oh, forget the 1%, we're talking like the 95% of uh, normal people served in these types of roles. Emperors? Well, there were a million inhabitants during Rome's height, of which one was emperor. Okay, there were occasions within Roman history in which there were several emperors all contending for power, but only one would emerge. So again, a million inhabitants, one emperor. There might have been 2,000 people in the noble classes, 8,000 praetorian soldiers, and the rest, everyday people. It is only in 21st century America that the latest iteration of Amazon Prime Cinderella, because we, we, you know, we really needed another Cinderella, features our heroine not rescued by the handsome prince from a life of deprivation and poverty, but instead rejects said rescue because, after all, she has her own dreams. 21st century America means that every boy is a prince, and every girl is a princess who doesn't necessarily need that prince. From the 1960s to today, three key demographics are driving the mindset of Americans, and they get short shrift. Writing for National Affairs, W. Bradford Wilcox wrote this year, quote, From 1960 to 1980, the divorce rate more than doubled from 9.2 divorces per 1,000 married women to 22.6 divorces per 1,000 married women. This meant that while less than 20% of couples who married in 1950 ended up in divorce, about 50% of couples married in 1970 did. And approximately half of the children born to married parents in the 1970s saw their parents divorce, compared to only about 11% of those born in the 1950s. Unquote. In terms of historical birth rates, NPR noted this year, quote, the number of babies born in the U.S. dropped by 4% in 2020 compared with the previous year, according to a new federal report released Wednesday. According to the provisional data, the general fertility rate was 55.8 births per 1,000 women ages 15 to 44, reaching another record low. This is the sixth consecutive year that the number of births has declined after an increase in 2014, down an average of 2% per year, and the lowest number of births since the 1970s, the National Center for Health Statistics said, unquote. This trend is not new, but rather an acceleration of a 50-year pattern. According to Pew Research, from 1950 to 1955, the crude birth rate in the U.S. averaged 24.4 per 1,000 people. But by 2010, 2015, the crude birth rate in the United States had fallen to 13.2, much closer to the crude death rate 
of 8.3. By mid-century, from 2050 to 2055, the birth rate is projected to drop further to 12.2. The figure in 2021 and the death rate will rise, baby boomers, to 10.2. Consequently, population growth from 2010 to 2050 should be much slower than from 1950 to 2010. As noted above, COVID has served as an accelerator to this trend as an economically disadvantaged further delay having kids. Now, though the Greens probably love these statistics, this is going to create a whole series of issues as far as skilled workers, and it puts a different light on the immigration saga. But that's a topic for another time. What I'm talking about today is, is primarily the focus on those few children who are being born. Then there is the one final stat and something that gets even less attention than the other two because this is something that certainly politicians don't want to talk about. One constantly hears how busy we are, how stressed out, yet actual leisure time, in other words, those activities not directly related to salary or wage earning activities, has increased. According to the Bureau for Labor Statistics, on an average day in 2019, nearly everyone, everyone age 15 and older, 95% of the population, engaged in some sort of leisure activity, such as watching TV, socializing, or exercising. Moreover, men spent more time in leisure activities, 5.5 hours, than did women, 4.9 hours. On average, watching TV was the leisure activity that occupied the most time, shocking, accounting for just over half of all leisure time. Writing for the St. Louis Fed, Christy M. Egeman and Michael T. Owang note, quote, Numerous economic studies suggest that the number of hours that the average American works in a year have fallen by about 550 hours from 1900 to 2005. The cotton hours worked presumably comes with the benefit of increased time devoted to leisure. The authors estimated that the average employed person works 55 hours per week in 1900, but only 37 hours per week in 2004. Politicians of neither stripe want to talk about these kinds of changes. Now, these changes are beneficial. They're great. I mean, who wants to spend all of your waking time working? But politicians don't want to talk about it because without the concept of the hardworking, stressed out American, it justifies less intervention in governmental terms. Hence, we are too busy and too stressed out despite these numbers. What does all this mean? Before getting married in the Catholic Church, my wife and I were required to attend a couple's talk. I thought it quite anachronistic to hear thoughts of successful marriage from men who are never part of such an institution. But what priests know, the vast number of decent ones, let me always make that caveat when talking about a Catholic priest, is the commitment to an institution and what that commitment to that institution entails. And one of the foremost parts of that, including and foremost the, comp the concept, that compromise is the hallmark of success. But what is also incredibly important is knowing what is the center of that institution. The big takeaway from these talks was that parents, parents and not children were the centers of the marriage and of the family. But take a look at the families you know today. Does that exist? Or do the children form the nucleus? 
Schedules, savings for college, focus, and energy are all focused on the kids. And those stats cited above, when a divorced parent is with their children, there is no spouse to draw off attention. All of the attention is on the children. And in some cases, anecdotally that I've observed, the child almost becomes the partner in the enterprise of whatever that parent alone is doing. The child becomes far more friend than child. And fewer children obviously mean even more focus on those children. Even in a successful two-person marriage, that the focus, if there are two children as opposed to four, will be a laser-like focus on those two children. And the leisure time? Sure, there is the TV watching, but anecdotally, when I played baseball as a kid, I can count on one hand the games my parents attended. I biked to the games, and it was a luxury if they were to show up and watch. But for my children, both myself, both myself and my wife were there for the majority of their games, and so were the other parents. Again, all of this laser-like focus. Our children are the royalty today within the United States of America. There are enough books on marriage to fill a small library, but there are even more books on parenting. Note the verb form, not a noun, to fill the Library of Congress. And think of the animal metaphors. Moni Kieran wrote, writing for the Times columnist, quote, since when did parenting me becoming a zoo animal? References to zoos and young families in the same breath are common enough. Families with young children visit zoos, petting farms, aquariums, and nature centers more than most other folks. But now, however, even parenting styles, parenting again, note the word, styles have assumed zoo-related references. If you're authoritarian, you're a tiger parent. If you're permissive, you're a jellyfish parent. And if you are firm but flexible, you're a dolphin parent. But the references have more to do with our social and cultural assumptions than with the actual animals. American lawyer Amy Chua brought the expression tiger mom into everyday use with her 2011 book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, which describes her efforts to raise her kids according to strict traditional, quote, Asian, unquote, parenting methods. Many readers saw the book as advocating for a strict, controlling, ethnically defined approach to parenting, one that uses psychological and emotional manipulation, such as public shaming to control and direct children. Unquote. I would add to that personally, grizzly moms and lion parenting. Quote, in keeping with the theme, here are a few other animal names to arbitrarily pin to parenting styles. Monkey parents monkey around with their kids and teaching them to fling crap at strangers they don't like. Parrot parents teach kids by road instructions. Lemurs parents blindly follow what other parents do without question. Eagle parents raise other family stray kids and red tail hawk chicks as their own. Spider parents eat their young for breakfast, unquote. Okay, that that last one, the spider parent, I'm, I'm sorry, that was a little creepy, but uh, it, it was disturbing, but you get the point. When you have a massive subgenre, you know who is at the center of attention to an even enormous, larger subgenre, and who is at the center of all of this attention, of all of these books, of all of these discussions, it is the children. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why, that's great. Isn't it wonderful that we spend all this time and focus and energy on our children? I don't know. That is going to be a very interesting question for the future. There are all kinds of other stats. Depression, 
way up. Suicide, way up. Children breakdowns, way up. Is all of that attention really the way we should be going? But that's a psychological discussion. I'm really more interested today in talking about the ramifications of focus and the ramifications of government policy. There is a common theme in all that. It is that children need, in too many Americans' estimation, to pursue their dreams! Exclamation point. The problem with everyone pursuing their dream is the reality of, well, life itself. If in 1500s China, not everyone could be the emperor or highly placed Mandarin because the nation at the time was already a staggering 100 million people, that was because someone had to grow the rice to feed that many people. Others had to transport the crop or build boats along the Grand Canal to transport it to the other parts of the country. Somebody had to maintain the canal upon which that boat sat. Not everyone can be emperor. The opportunity to staff that role is relatively remote. As of this writing, in a post-pandemic America, the Biden administration has policies to solve many ills, including those of child care. The problem is these are not nearly the most important ills we have. Instead of human infrastructure, we need, you know, the real kind, as in larger, more efficient ports. Quick, go to a Walmart right now. Oh, it's Walmart, the largest retail in the world. And I guarantee you, half of the shelves will be empty because of the port situation. Here's another little exercise. You don't even need to leave your home. Go ahead, take a break from my dulcet tones and search for Port of Los Angeles delays. Just go ahead, put that into your search menu right now. And I hate to say it, but Google it. Delays, and you will see a real need that, God forbid, the government might actually have a role. But let's say that the government does actually do something with, you know, real infrastructure, not that fake humankind, and builds out that port. Who exactly is going to build out the port? We talk about infrastructure and shovel-ready jobs. Do we have the teams to do it? Do we have the training within the United States to manage that? Well, we don't, because princes and princesses don't dig ditches. They don't operate cranes, and they don't know how to manage a backhoe. Quick, how many of the Tiger Cub children grew up wanting to be a crane operator or be part of a container vessel? You know, again, the things we really need? It is not lost on the American people that labor shortages today consist of non-dreamy areas of life that include plumbers, carpenters, wheel affixers at the Ford plant. And here's something for all of you crazy greens out there, you eco-warriors. If I try to order solar paneling for my roof today, I have to wait months, if not years. And why is that? Because there are not enough solar implementation people, enough solar installers, enough solar technicians to go around. It is a common misnomer amongst uh, politicians of both parties that somehow China is preventing us from bringing back manufacturing jobs. I would guarantee that if China's factory system somehow collapsed and that 500,000 manufacturing jobs are whistled up in a day, we could not fill them for lack of desire on the part of our princes and princesses to staff them. It is not just wages and efficiency that drive our manufacturing issues. It is that no one here wants to do that kind of work. There is also the simplicity of decision. 
As Kevin Williamson, writing in the National Review, noted this past month, quote, We should understand the progressive dream of being China for a day as a close cousin of the perverse envy that some on the right evince for a liberal regime such as those of Vladimir Putin or Viktor Orban or a near relation to the Trumpist grudging admiration of Xi Jinping. It is rooted in a desire for a simplified politics, one in which we liberate ourselves from the need to work out unsatisfying trade-offs between competing values by rejecting some of those values. Unquote. The reality is, is that if China needs construction people or crane operators or solar technicians, Xi Jinping will order it as such. I'm going to put you into that school and you better learn. And by the way, in case you try to define me, this me being Xi Jinping, maybe I'll uh, take you to a weaker camp and show you what I do to those who do not toe the line. So let's, uh, let's get rid of the China for the day and those illiberal regimes right now. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. I am talking about a change in cultural thinking to address our needs and issues. Biden Yes, Joe Biden is actually on to something with his focus on non-traditional college. But as been typical of Biden for 50 years and is clearly evident in his presidency, he is in the right neighborhood, but too dumb to locate the right house. Encouraging Americans into vocational pursuits would have a triple effect. One, filling necessary jobs with skilled workers. Two, alleviating the cost currently borne by Americans of not having enough of these skilled workers to help. Uh, go, uh, go for it. Do it right now. Call a plumber and find out how long. And finally, by creating a stronger tax-paying base for the bloated government that we already cannot pay for. And we do this by encouraging. And I do not mean transfer payments from one group of taxpayers to pay for this, but rather encouraging and celebrating the vocational schools and stop trying to convince Junior that he will be the next poet laureate or Steven Spielberg or, by God, an activist. We do not need more activists. Instead, go back to that crazy town idea of providing someone with a purpose that pays the bills with a decent amount of money left over. As noted, remember, Biden, he can, might be able to get to the right neighborhood, but he'll never find the right house. This is Biden. His wife teaches English, English at a community college, because this is what we need in the nation today. A bunch more two-year English majors. Forget those crane operators. We need more English majors. And by the way, these English majors barely actually read English people anymore. Because of the world curricula, they will not read Shakespeare works on various royals, real and fictional. Reading King Lear, King John, Richard II, Henry IV, or Richard III would teach, might teach, the little would-be prince that royalty is not all it's cracked up to be. This is Bell Avis. As always, thank you for listening to the Conservative Historian Podcast.